From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Maybe you've wondered why Seattle seems to have a bigger homelessness problem than much poorer cities like, for example, Detroit. Well, there is a reason, and Greg Colburn talks about this in a new book, which was co-authored with Clayton Alden. It's called Homelessness is a Housing Problem. So are you saying that it is not linked to things like uh, mental health or, or personal responsibility, you know, criminal behavior, things like that? I don't know that I would completely agree with your assessment there. We certainly acknowledge in the book that individual vulnerabilities, be it poverty, uh, mental health challenges, substance use disorders, certainly have a causal relationship to homelessness, right? Those are risk factors that are well acknowledged in the, in the scholarship, uh, risk factors for homelessness. What we argue in the book is that every community in the country has people with vulnerabilities, be it addiction, uh, mental health, poverty, et cetera. But the, the point of the book is that the consequences of those individual vulnerabilities are more severe or more acute in places with very expensive housing markets and where housing is not uh, abundantly available. So people in crisis are common to all cities. It's just that it's easier to cope in some cities than others? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, for example, Detroit has the highest poverty rate in the country. We know that poverty is a cause of homelessness, yet Detroit has one-fifth the homelessness that King County has. So explain to me why that happens. Well, I think there's there's a basic intuition here, and then I'll turn it over to Clay to have him respond as well. But the basic intuition here is that if you have very limited resources, it is easier to figure things out in a place where housing might only cost six or $700 a month than in a place where it costs 1500 to $2,000 a month. This is not um, earth-shattering research in the sense that there's a mm-hmm. really basic intuition that underlies it. And I think we would all understand if we put ourselves into that position, that through sources of, of public assistance, of familiar or social support systems, that in a place where housing is much cheaper, you might be able to make it work. And that becomes very, very difficult when we start to look at the rents that that people face on the West Coast of the United States, where uh, many times it's $1,500, $2,000 just, right. to, just to afford a, a housing unit. But, but it sounds like you're saying every city then really needs a sufficient number of what poor neighborhoods, poor, poor people who can't afford $2,500 a month for rent can afford at least something. Well, I, I don't know that I would call it poor neighborhoods. I would say we need uh, more abundant, affordable housing in every every city in the in the nation. There's no doubt about that. Um, and so I would say that a, a, a city without housing that's affordable to people who are uh, making the minimum wage, for example, to me is not a healthy community. Because in, in other words, without access to that housing, what we're saying is people who earn lower levels of income are are not welcome in our community. And I don't think that is, um, that's not a healthy or productive uh, society, at least in, in my opinion. So the question is, how does it happen in a market economy? Because I can, I've lived here, what, 44 years now. I can remember when we had uh, in the Westlake area, which is now completely developed, we had basically uh, old flop houses. I mean, these were places that were, were run down, but obviously they were someone's home because once that stuff was replaced, you saw the tents popping up. Uh, and yet nobody is going to set out to build low-cost housing if they expect to make a profit. So it sounds like we're stuck. Well, we're stuck if we believe that the only source of housing uh, in the United States is through private market mechanisms. I would argue that we have had a very healthy and robust 
uh, housing system that includes both private market sources as well as public market sources. We've had a history of public housing in the United States. Right now, we construct uh, hundreds of thousands of units um, with tax credits, and those are tax credits that come from the, from the federal government that are distributed to local uh, jurisdictions to help construct affordable housing. We have seen in the last couple of years uh, local governments, be it the city or the county, get involved in, in uh, procuring or acquiring um, new housing uh, in the form of hotels. And so I don't necessarily buy the argument that the private market is the sole delivery mechanism for housing. I don't think that that is reasonable or responsible. Uh, I, I firmly support private market developers. We need a lot more housing in Seattle. And so I cheer when, when developers want to build more housing. But I also believe there's a role for the public sector. And uh, I don't believe that that's inconsistent with a healthy, healthy vibrant private market. And, and when we start to think about rents in places like Seattle with the land costs that we have, with the materials costs that we have and the labor costs that we have, it is very, very difficult for a private market actor to construct housing that will be affordable to someone who can only afford $600 a year. Yeah. And so if we, if we simply say, well, then we're out of luck, um, then we're going to continue to face the problems that we, we confront in this city right now. And to me, that is not, it's, it's not wise on many levels. I think we have a moral and ethical challenge there. I think we also just have a, a healthy community challenge in the sense that are, are we saying that uh, third grade teachers can no longer live in the city because they can't afford $2,000 rents? I, I don't think that that is a good way to, to, to run a community. And therefore, I do believe that there needs to be a stronger role for, for governments at all levels in the provision of housing. Your co-author is Clayton Alden, who is your uh, your data guy. So, Clayton, what does the data tell you on this? How how by how much does housing have to be subsidized in a place like Seattle to accommodate all the people who need low cost housing? Hey, thanks Dave for for having us. You know, I I don't feel comfortable speaking directly to that question because we don't we don't think a lot about this this notion of subsidy in in the book. What I can tell you is that Greg's right. We need housing up and down. The income spectrum. It's 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 not just a matter of of thinking through the provision of low income housing. And and while that's necessary and essential, we need housing uh, for everyone who's interested in living in the city. And folks have a lot of different types of incomes, right? We we know that. You know, I I, I can say that uh, a couple of years ago, you know, the consulting from McKinsey took a look at this question of of extremely low income households and right those earning less than thirty percent of the area median income. And they said, you know, listen, under this kind of conservative set of assumptions, we think that ending homelessness in King County is going to cost somewhere on the order of uh, 4.5 to about $11 billion over 10 years. Okay. And, 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 you know, so that's, let's call it a billion dollars each year for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's a big number, right? But we've, we've spent in the region, we've spent uh, lots of money before on infrastructure projects. And, and the argument we make in the books that uh, housing ought to be considered a, a, an infrastructure investment as well. But building it as we have on some of the most expensive land in the city, I'm thinking of some of the downtown buildings that have been um, uh, refurbished, essentially, is you're not going to house enough people, even with even if you had a billion dollars a year. I mean, isn't that one of the reasons we're building light rail, for example, so you can build housing on cheaper land in the suburbs and still have access to the jobs in downtown Seattle that many low-income people hold. So two things. One is 
A key part of the story here is increased density. I would agree with you if we're constructing single family homes on very, very expensive parcels of land, that is not a wise investment uh, for our community. But I do think uh, much higher density housing can be reasonably constructed even in relatively high cost areas. And so um, a big theme in in not just our book, but in in housing discussions right now is that we will need to have denser housing in, in our region to accommodate the growth that we continue to expect to achieve here. Transportation is also critical in this. And so light rail will absolutely allow us to spread out the population up and down uh, the Puget Sound corridor, uh, you know, from Everett down to Tacoma. And that will allow people to live in other places that potentially have lower uh, cost housing than than in the urban core of Seattle. And so I would absolutely agree with you. But I also believe that I don't think we need to abandon the urban core from a housing standpoint because dense housing can be built uh, in, in, in the urban core. And, it, and I believe it needs to. A few years back, we were talking about micro-apartments, right? These are essentially dormitories. I think in some cases they had shared bathrooms, but neighborhoods didn't want them. They were they were afraid. Uh, the ostensible reason was there'd be too much traffic. I think it was probably, though, it would be an influx of low-income people. Um, don't you have to get past that, too? I think part of what you're talking about, Dave, is that there's a there's a perceptual challenge here. And, and, and I think uh, when it comes to housing and homelessness, and in particular when it comes to uh, thinking about the provision of low-income housing, you're absolutely right in that there's, there's this intense othering that takes place, right? There's this gap in experience between people who have housing and people who don't. And part of what our, our project is, is interested in uh, is figuring out how to close that gap, right? How, how, do, we, how, do, we, how do we understand the problem of homelessness as indeed a problem of housing and not a problem of, of personal deficiency. Right. And so I, I, I don't think, I don't think you're wrong. I, I, I think it's absolutely true that sometimes these discussions around densifying urban cores are, are, are tinged with this understanding of the problem that says, Oh, well, you know, if we do that, there are going to be more of these other types of people here. Yeah. And I think what, what, Greg and I would argue, and I'd be interested to hear from him, is that if you can indeed understand the problem as as one of a market challenge, one of a market failure, if you can understand it as a housing problem, it's a little easier to see one another as as human beings uh, mm-hmm. worthy of dignity. And Dave, I, I, this is Greg, I would just follow up and say that there's been a lot of really interesting research on the power of local communities in in decisions related to housing. Mm-hmm. And we know that single-family homeowners typically have not uh, warmly welcomed multifamily <laughs> right. housing, especially multifamily housing that's um, designed to accommodate low-income households into their neighborhoods. And that is a and every time I give a talk about housing, I say that this is a fundamental challenge that we have to confront. And, and if ultimately a relatively small segment of the population continues to frustrate or or create impediments for the construction of housing, we will all collectively pay the cost of this. Not at the same level of people without housing, but generally speaking, we have to change the way our built environment is constructed in this community over the next 30, 50 years, or we will have of significant problems. And so I think that's a big part of the work that needs to be done. And, 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 and a lot of people are focused on that. And I think for everyone listening, you know, who lives in a single family home. I live in a single family home. And so I am not disparaging those who do live in single family homes, but I think there needs to be a change, uh, changing perception in terms of how we think about our neighborhoods. And the fact that more people come into a neighborhood is a positive thing. It is not necessarily, uh, it's not a bad thing. And failure to welcome people into our neighborhoods through different types of housing is, is blatantly exclusionary and it has significant costs. 
So this is the new redlining, huh? Yeah, it's a form of it. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a um, redlining for those who are not familiar was was actually institutional in the sense that that the mortgage system and governments were involved in that in that process. Um, this would be uh, in essence in, in kind of a softer form of that in the sense that people can go to community meetings and say, "I don't want multifamily housing in my neighborhood." Um, and it, the the more difficult that process becomes, people then go elsewhere. And so it is a way of, of preserving uh, an exclusionary uh, way of of providing housing. And and this has happened all around the United States, right? This is not exclusive uh, to Seattle. What about looking at this from the wage perspective? If wages for these low-paid jobs were higher, and these are essential jobs. I mean, we're talking about people who maintain the buildings, and, and you mentioned school teachers, right? If um, if wages were higher, then maybe the market could solve this problem. Has anybody, has any city addressed it from that angle? I'm not aware of a research of research exactly to that end, uh, but what I can say, Dave, is it's certainly true uh, that housing prices and population growth, right, have both outpaced growth in wages in our region over the same time period, right? If you look at the past decade or so, uh, housing prices have exploded, and and the region has seen, uh, you know, quite a bit of population growth, and and wages, you know, in real terms have stayed relatively flat. So n- no question, it's part of the equation. Uh, Greg, are you are you aware of anybody who's who's looked at that exact question? No, I I, I guess. No, the answer to that question is no. The way I would respond to your question, Dave, is that in the sense that we have housing costs that are completely out of control. And so to me, a a, a policy of just saying, let's have wages chase out of control housing prices, to me, is not a great way to pursue this. I think a better way to pursue it is, why don't we continue to have reasonable wage growth for low and middle income households and then housing that's affordable to them? We know that that housing can be affordable. Detroit has far lower wages than Seattle does. Mm-hmm. But its housing is affordable, and so that so yeah. they have one fifth the rate of homelessness that we do. So I don't know that paying Seattle public school teachers an Amazon software engineer wage is the solution to this crisis. I yeah. hope we could, uh, but I'm a realist in understanding that uh, it's unlikely we're going to pay our school teachers two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, and therefore, because there are so many people making twenty to, to sixty to seventy thousand dollars a year in our region, I think we need to have a real hard conversation about how do we make sure that wages are real. We have a minimum wage now, which certainly helped. Um, but even working full-time at the minimum wage um, gets you nowhere near where you need to be to to accommodate or to afford uh, housing. Yeah. And therefore, that's why we center uh, the conversation around housing. But the point stands that wages need to continue to grow. We have huge wage disparity in the United States, and, and most of the wage gains in the last couple of decades have gone to the top 5% or 1% of households. And so that's certainly part of the conversation. Yeah. But we our gap is so significant right now that um, even five or 10 percent increases uh, in the minimum wage would still not get people anywhere near where they need to be to afford housing. OK, so we have to build higher density housing in single family neighborhoods or we have to open up more land, a lot of which is locked away for environmental reasons. Or we have to uh, figure out vastly more efficient building methods, which would mean uh, prefabricated buildings or, you know, uh, mass produced dormitory style Apartments. Do you have any idea what that would then look like? If we, if we look at just take the example of Seattle over the next 10 years or so, if we really committed to solving this problem of, of homelessness, how would the city change? I think the fears around density are, are greater than what we will actually experience if we do do this. 
And so, you know, I first got interested in, in housing when I was coaching little league baseball in, in Cabrini green, which is a, you know, a notorious housing project in, in Chicago. Yeah. And this was in the 1990s. And I think a lot of people, when they think about higher density housing and public involvement in housing, they go to these massive public housing uh, programs like Cabrini green in Chicago and say, that's not what I want in our city. In reality, we have a lot of public housing already in Seattle that people don't even know is public housing. And so what would it look like, Dave? I think what you'd see is, and, and, and students at the university of Washington have done some good work in, in, in studios on this in the sense that if we think about all the station areas that are going to be built up and down the light rail corridor in our region, and uh, I'm working with a group that's thinking about how do we create high density livable communities around those station areas. The goal is how do we build 10,000 units around each of those station areas rather than let's say a thousand units, let's build 10,000 units. And it sounds like a lot, but the reality is that when you visualize that, what it is, is it's a cool area. You've got more dense housing, slightly higher near the station area. It starts to go down a little bit. It might be, you know, three flat, four flat type um, housing. And you might have 10 stories or more very near the station area. And it's walkable. It's a pleasant experience. And so I don't, I think in reality, if, if we do this well, and let's say we have 50, 60 station areas times 10,000 units, that's a lot of housing units. We could really put a dent in our, um, in our deficit if we do this well. And I think what you'd see is visually a be appealing. And I think that these would be places that people would enjoy living, that the specter of public housing and, and the projects is not the reality of what, what we would actually experience. I would also just add that uh, a lot of the exciting stuff that we've seen materialize over the past couple of years is vis-a-vis existing units, right? And that's not to suggest that uh, we don't need to build anymore. We, we do, and at, at a huge scale. But it's something like a housing authority takes control of, of an old hotel, and all of a sudden, those units are being used and used by people who need them. That's a great solution. And by the way, your block doesn't look any different, except perhaps there are fewer people sleeping outside. Right now, the system writ large is not working. And, and Dave, the picture you paint is, I think, a, a picture of a system that is working. And, and we're, we're interested in, in vibrant communities, and we're interested uh, in ensuring that folks have access to the, the housing resources and, and community resources that they need. This picture is one of, indeed, a vibrant community, a, a system working. I think, I think the question you know, I have is, why are, we, why are we okay with the status quo, which is a system that doesn't work? Yeah, well, people want the tents gone and want their neighborhoods to stay the same. And I don't think those two goals are necessarily uh, compatible. If you're talking about uh, light rail stations with, what, 10,000 additional residents, I mean, that's what light rail was meant for. Absolutely, it's got the capacity for that. But the zoning, I mean, when the governor tried to propose such a thing uh, during this past legislative session, where you'd have that kind of zoning near the light rail stations all over the, the region, it got nowhere, even among Democrats. So then what? Well, we've got we've got a lot of work to do, Dave. You're, you're exactly right. And this gets back to the, the perception around housing in the sense that I think people have the view of Seattle of, of 30 years ago and say, I really like that. And I want to I want to preserve that. The reality is Seattle is now a global city and global cities look and operate very differently. And, and we will look and operate differently over the next 50 years. And it's a matter of, is it going to be a very painful transition or will we transition more gracefully and welcome uh, kind of this new reality of, of our region? 
region. I think the Seattle of 1970s is gone. And, and if we kind of hold on to that idea, it will continue to create challenges for us going forward. And does that frustrate some people? Sure, absolutely. And, and I understand that people say, I really like Seattle the way it used to be. I understand the reality is it's not there anymore. I think what we're going to see is Seattle's going to look a lot more like big global cities. And when you if you travel the world and, and go to big global cities, what you'll see is you don't see a whole bunch of single family zoning five minutes from the urban core. No, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Greg Colburn and Clayton Alden, the co-authors of Homelessness is a Housing Problem. Read their bios. They are genuinely impressive. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having us, Dave. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast and you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's morning news? You can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's morning news. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. 